Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Rousseau. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. My guest today, Matt Cook, the former Wild player, uh, Penguin Stanley Cup champion, Washington Capital and Vancouver Canuck as well. He's, so he's seen both sides of the uh, Canucks and Wild rivalry. The Penguins-Capitals rivalry will be a really good conversation about uh, his career. Um, NHL supplemental discipline, which has been a big topic throughout the playoffs and really for much of the season. We'll talk a lot about that. As you know, Matt Cook um, had a bit of a blotchy past uh, six career suspensions, totaling 34 games. Um, he was also fined four other times, and one of those suspensions actually came in the 2014 playoffs with the Minnesota Wild, where he was suspended seven games uh, for kneeing Tyson Berry. We'll talk about that incident and talk about some other incidents along the way and his thoughts on supplemental discipline, but we'll talk a lot about um, his new role as the head hockey coach for the Chaska Boys hockey team. This is a team that has got um, yeah, really an up-and-coming program in the lower levels of hockey and the y- younger levels of hockey, I should say, so really Chaska. It looks like they're going to have a heck of a run here um, in high schools coming up. And uh, Matt Cook will be guiding uh, that team uh, with John Drager, actually, uh, one of his assistant coaches, the former Wild draft pick. We'll be talking to Matt Cook about hiring uh, Drager as well. We'll be talking to Matt about uh, being teammates with Billy Guerin in Pittsburgh. We'll talk about Sidney Crosby being on the other side of that 2003 Canucks Wild uh, rivalry as well. So a lot of w- good uh, conversation here coming up with Matt Cook. Um, in terms of the Wild, things are slow right now. Uh, Billy Guerin, Dean Evison, and Chris O'Hearn just got back uh, last Friday from a uh, organizational retreat. They had meetings with Craig Leopold, Matt Maka, and Gang to discuss uh, the upcoming offseason, next year's budget, and things like that. Um, now he's back in town um, on Tuesday and Wednesday having pro scouting meetings, and then he'll really start to put the pedal to the metal, uh, begin uh, – the process of trying to get uh, Kirill Kaprizov, Kevin Fiala, and Yul Eriksson Ek uh, signed to new contracts. He'll uh, go through during these pro scouting meetings different expansion exercises and ideas that he could potentially put forth uh, to exercise a plan, as he said uh, recently to me and and also Anthony Lapanta on another podcast. Um, have a plan A and a plan B to try to execute in terms of expansion. He'll uh, really during these pro scouting meetings talk trade options, free agent options, uh, things like that with the scouts, what they think of different players. Um, you know, right now, again, I, I think the big uh, priority this summer, besides resigning his restricted free agents, I think Billy would love to try to go out to get a center or two. Uh, that will not be easy. You know, every every time you're going out and trying to get, there's so few available every year that you there's always warts with any type of player you're going to bring in. So you go after Jack Eichel, and what are the the challenges? The challenges are $10 million, a huge haul to get that player. 
that also has a major neck injury right now that they don't know um, how they're remedying, remedying that situation. And you've got to do due diligence there. Um, Sam Reinhardt, not again, an easy player to just pick off. It's going to cause a lot of assets. You got to re-sign him as well. You got to trade money off your roster. Um, there's another potential player. Um, you know, the one thing that I've been talking about a lot recently, and we discussed with Matt Dumba at the end of the year, is that he's going to go through another offseason of seeing his name in trade rumors. Well, teams are calling on Matt Dumba. Um, how much interest there is, um, who knows? One team that I know has called on Matt Dumba is uh, the Philadelphia Flyers. I heard that a couple days ago, and I've definitely confirmed it ever uh, ever since. Now, how big is that interest? Uh, we'll see. There's a lot of right shot defensemen suddenly available. Uh, you know, there's Seth Jones available. There's Dougie Hamilton's out there as well. Um, uh, so there's many, many players that Chuck Fletcher and Brent Flair could go after, but they want to infuse some energy into that locker room. And Matt Dumba is certainly that and might be the perfect type of player. Now, what do you get in a trade for Matt Dumba if you're Billy Guerin? Well, I think the Wild would love to free up some cap space. You know, maybe you take one player back like a Justin Braun or somebody like that to fill in for a Matt Dumba and take that spot in the lineup uh, on the, probably in the third pair. And at least you take some money back and giving up six million to them. But if I were Billy Guerin, I would at least look at some of their prospects, uh, guys like uh, like uh, Nolan Patrick, the number two overall pick, who it's the ultimate buy low circumstance. Another center that they have there, a prospect is Morgan Frost. To me, he's more appetizing than than uh, than Nolan Patrick. Nolan is the ultimate buy low guy right now. I think he wants to change the scenery. Um, he could be the secondary piece in a larger deal, but it's hard to know with his major injuries that he's had the last couple of years, concussions, the migraine disorder that he had, if those are truly behind him. Um, you know, he's done it pretty well the last year managing that migraine disorder, but you never know if it's just going to come back and especially if he's ever concussed again and he's had injury issues, not just in his NHL career, but his junior career as well. Um, you know, as for him as a player, the, the, the talent is there. Um, he's a big center who can skate. Um, but the problem with him always has been drive and, and playing too much of a passive game. He, in a lot of ways, reminds me of uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois, who was just traded to the Winnipeg Jets, who just did not impress me at all during the Jets-Montreal series uh, that we just watched him in um, as well. Just looked kind of, uh, you know, out of sorts at times and not engaged. And, and that's sometimes what I see from Nolan Patrick, and maybe that has to do with his injuries. Um, but... The, the reality is, is that he has top six potential for sure, um, but there's a legitimate reason to be skeptical as well. But he's somebody that you'd maybe look at. Um, Morgan Frost is another player, you know, highly skilled playmaker, um, subpar skater. Uh, but definitely a top two line center. Um, so maybe you look at him or they've got wingers there like Allison. Uh, Morgan Frost to me is more like a Mikhail Granlin type. Uh, but, um, you know, that's also I've talked to Corey Pronman about him and that's who he uh, compares him to as well. Um, so we'll see if the, if the Flyers, uh, if there's some sort of fit there. But uh, but I could see Matt Dumba, especially if the Buffalo Sabres are not interested, that maybe you look and trade him for futures and guys like Frost and Patrick might make sense. Um, you know, other centers that are potentially out there this offseason, I'll be doing a story on that uh, coming up. Um, but, you know, maybe Zibanejad. We've always talked about the pipe dream that is Barkov. But if all of a sudden he tells them that he is not willing to sign an extension, in there at some point in the next year. I've got to think Florida would have to look to trade him. Um, other centers out there, I mean, people have talked about Detroit Red Wings captain uh, Dylan Larkin, there's Thomas Hurdle, 
there's Kuznetsov, who I just don't think, um, I think he's got every red flag in the, in the book to, to avoid trying to add him to the, to a team that is trying to change its culture on the ice. Um, there's guys like Christian Dvorak, uh, Sean Monahan, uh, maybe even Ryan Johansson in free agency. There's Ryan Nugent Hopkins makes no sense to me. Um, Philip Deneau. There's not a lot in free agency that to me makes a ton of sense. There's more fill in guys, you know, the Alex Weinbergs, the Matthias Jan Marks, the Derek Stepans, uh, people like that. Um, again, they're also, if they, if, if Nick Benino leaves, they might have to replace that. If they don't do it with the Connor Durer or Ren Duhame, maybe they have to go out and get a bottom six, uh, center, like a Sean Corrali or a Paquette. Evan Rodriguez is out there, Sezikis. Uh, so there are some centers out there, but nobody, um, other than trades that I think is really going to just move the needle in terms of getting that wild, that, that long sought after number one or two center. Um, so we'll see the way what Billy Guerin has up his sleeve the rest of the summer. Not easy. A lot of balls in the air. Every d- every move he makes affects fifteen other things. Um, again, the biggest priorities are getting Kaprizov, Fiala, and uh, Erickson X signed. The Kaprizov uh, deal is not going to be easy at all. Uh, so that's just my uh, gut there, and that, that I don't think that's just going to happen imminently. But we'll see. Um, you know where that goes, but it'll get done. I just don't think it's going to happen really simply because the Wild have already offered really quality uh, long-term contracts. And so far, Kirill Kaprizov hasn't jumped at that and and could be looking for a shorter-term deal here to see the Wild and how they continue to develop uh, before he gives up his unrestricted free agent rights in three years. So we'll see. Um, But without further ado, I hope you enjoy this podcast with former Wild player Matt Cook. Uh, Hardy, welcome to Matt Cook. 1,046 games in the NHL, another 110 in the playoffs, played for Vancouver and Pittsburgh, Washington, Minnesota. So you've seen both sides of both those rivalries, Pittsburgh and Washington, Minnesota and Vancouver. We could have uh, fun talking about that, Mac. Um, Also, uh, the owner and proprietor of Perfect World Hockey uh, Training and the newest head coach for the uh, boys hockey team at Chaska High School. Matt, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. So Matt, let me ask you a question. Uh, you, you, uh, the one thing I've known about Chaska for a little while is that it looks like youth-wise, it is absolutely up and coming. One of the best in the in the state. How close are they getting to be? You know, putting on Chaska High School uh, uniforms, and how excited are you about the future up there at Chaska? I'm I'm super excited about the opportunity. Obviously, um, you know, coaching is something that you know I felt like I did as a player. It's something you know my days here in Minnesota. You know, working with Charlie Coyle, Mikhail uh, Granlin, Nino Niederreiter, Eric Halla, teaching those guys basically like nuances of the game that hadn't been they hadn't been exposed to yet that are reality and how you manage all of that and how you include some of that into your game. And uh, so I felt like, you know, the last five or six years of my career, I was really trying to bring young guys along. Um, and it was just something I've been interested in my whole life. And so uh Getting an opportunity at Chaska, I think, super exciting. They have, they do have, obviously, with Breakaway being there and their development of young players that that can play for Chaska Chan Youth Association, and you're seeing a lot of that talent actually make it to high school here in the next few years. So, um, you know, we have a strong team. Uh, obviously, we're, we have some. We're up against tough competition, and uh, you know, Benilde and Eden Prairie, but. I like our chances this year. We have a really strong goaltender and we have a, a really good group. They only had three seniors on the team last year. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that 
we may surprise a few people. Now you got your start. We'll talk about uh, y- the coaching you did with guys like Nino Gran- Granny and, and Coyle in a little bit. Um, but you got your start at Orono, right? With uh, were you on Mark Parrish's staff? Yeah. So yep. I mean, 2014-15 was the last year that I played, um, and that November of 2015, Mark was taking over the head coach job in Orono, and I called him and said, "Do you need a coach?" And he was like, "No, but if you want to come, I do." <laughs> uh, and so I jumped on. I coached the defense with Orno for a couple of years. You know, worked with Mark in implementing some systems, some basic systems that would allow the kids to rely on. And most of them in the beginning were super overwhelmed just because they'd never ever been given a system before. Um, but that group of sophomores, which were really really talented in Orno, ended up winning a state tournament. Two yeah, years that time. Yeah. The um. And were you on that bench, or or you had already left there? Yeah, no. So I got an opportunity to be basically head coach and general manager of Minnesota Revolution. Right. And so I stepped away and and worked, uh, you know, recruiting and building a program with Minnesota Revolution. Unfortunately, you know, with Minnesota hockey and how uh, strongly they protect their territory, we couldn't get tier one status. And so we were losing kids to organizations in Wisconsin that we just couldn't compete with. Interesting. The um, you, you mentioned how you were almost a coach on the Minnesota Wild, and I actually I remember it was either Mike Yo or Darby Hendrickson once telling me that you used to, um, you know, take these guys aside, you'd show them video, you'd you'd actually grab the uh, the the you know you you do drills in practice. You 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 basically worked with these guys on the side. Is is that pretty accurate? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, for for sure you're accurate, Darby. I mean. Darby and I go way back. Obviously, I'm not mm-hmm. sure you know this, but when I got called up to Vancouver my second year, Darby was put on waivers to make room for me to be able to play. Mm. So we have a history together. We, we've been into a few camps together. Obviously, he was my coach when I was here. And so we, we just have a great relationship. And Darby would joke like as if I just had a dry erase marker in my pants because <laughs> there'd be times in practice when we weren't getting out of what – like it wasn't making any sense to the players – but I knew what the coaches wanted. And so I would just redirect the drill so that it, we would get the execution level that we needed. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's something I've always been interested in. When I, you know, in the short period of times that I was hurt or out doing extra work or whatever, you know, I, it wouldn't be out of the realm of me to create a different drill to work on something different. Yeah, and all three of those guys, obviously not no longer in Minnesota, but continue to have a good career. And you know, had a great year. Uh, Granny got off to a slow start, really picked it up late. Charlie had a tough year, but he was, uh, I think he was playing through a pretty major knee injury all season long um, and, and really, really struggled in the playoffs. But obviously, these are three character guys that you got to, you know, really be around a lot here in Minnesota. You mentioned Eric Halla as well. Um, you know, what, what was that like sort of coming to a team where, you know, you went from being the young guy in a lot of places that you were to all of a sudden growing as a leader and eventually coming here to be almost like a secondary coach with Mike Yo. Yeah, I think that transition began in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. When I got there, I mean, I think the average age was 23 years old. So, um, you know, we had a few older guys and during that first season, we brought in a real old guy in Bill Guerin. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so really started to embrace the role there. But when I came to Minnesota, you know, I had a, had conversations with Yozi about how my role was to aid the locker room, to, to get what he was selling to actually show up on the ice. And so I kind of knew that that was my responsibility and something that I 
really look forward to because, you know, I tried to pride myself on being a certain level every night when I went on the ice, but helping others understand how to get there night in and night out mm-hmm. through the grind of an 82 game schedule, um, especially when you're used to playing 36 games in college, it, there's a big difference. Yeah. I remember uh, the day that you signed with the Wild. Uh, the, I believe the Wild traded Devin Setaguchi like a minute before to Winnipeg for a second round pick just to create the cap space. And then they signed you right after. And I remember how caught off guard I was. Uh, you know, like it was, it was, I mean, I, you know, normally I like to have my finger on the pulse of, of everything. And obviously I had a feeling that Seto was going to get traded, but I had no clue that you were going to sign there. How did that all come about? When did they first get in touch with you? Um, and, you know, signing with a team like Minnesota where it was a rival of yours for many, many years, was it always a fit for you? Uh, so I was in negotiations with Pittsburgh kind of my, that whole year. Um, I had my heart set on that's where I was going to stay. I mean, I, I had a really good fit in Pittsburgh. And then July 1 comes and my phone rings and it's not my agent, it's Mike Yo. And Yozy was the assistant coach in Pittsburgh when we won the Stanley Cup. And so we had a really good relationship. And during that time when he was the assistant coach, like it wouldn't be out of the norm for, you know, during a, a frustrating time to Yozy come up after practice and be like, let's scrap. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, I just need to get some energy out. Let's, let's fake scrap. So we would literally mess around because he was the assistant coach and yeah. his responsibilities were different. But when Mike called me, he basically said like, I need your help. I've seen you work in a locker room. I've seen you create cohesiveness and it's the one thing we're missing right now. And I, I want you to come to Minnesota. And I, it was out of the blue because up to that point I hadn't heard anything to do with it. So, you know, maybe a couple hours, you know, we had, a, we had another conversation. I talked to Chuck and Chuck was obviously in Pittsburgh at the time too. And when we won the cup and so it just seemed like a really good fit. I mean, my brother-in-law, who was working in Guelph, Ontario at the time, had just taken a position here with a divi- the U.S. division of his company. And so it, it just seemed like the stars aligned and it was somewhere where I wanted to be. And being somewhere, the transition was okay for me from a hockey uh, culture standpoint because this is the state of hockey. People, you know, people care about hockey. It's, you know, f- front and center. And so that that was important to me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it really is interesting. You never left. Uh, it, it, I, you know, when I tweeted out the other day that, that you were coming on the podcast and people had questions, there were a lot of people that were like, wow, he's still here. You must have really loved it. Uh, you know, why, why did you and your family not leave? Well, I think people don't understand, you know, I'd been away a lot. I missed a lot. My kids at the time in 2015, one was a ninth grader, one was a sixth grader. And I, we felt as a family that we needed to hit the brakes. Mm-hmm. You know, we needed to not move again. We needed to not throw them into another new environment. And so we had built a house here in, in Edina. And it was just a place that we felt comfortable being and allowing our kids to develop through their education and, and grow. And so um, we stayed. And, you know, we've done a lot of things. My my son's chased baseball a little bit. My daughter played, yeah. my middle daughter played soccer at Edina for a couple of years. And then now she's at the U. So it, it just felt home. And what's transpired since my, my oldest daughter and her husband moved to Thunder Bay, which of all the places in yeah. Canada they could be, it's really the closest. 
And so he's in residency there to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so um, Minnesota has just been a, a really great fit for us. So have you not seen them in a year, even though it's so close? Uh, they have the same border situation or no? Yeah, they do. But uh, because we are like my, oh, okay. my wife and I are Canadian, we crossed at, at Christmas and we stayed there for, up there for three weeks. Uh, you know, obviously we had to quarantine for two weeks and then spent a week mm-hmm. with them. So, um, we rented a cabin on Lake Superior and just kind of awesome down and had yeah. Christmas up there. So it was yeah. fun. And you mentioned your son Jackson, right? Um, yeah. yep, yep. Who I remember, uh, was mini me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean like, like that gets thrown around a lot. Like when a kid, like I, you know, I used to say that Nico's son looked like mini me, but he really wasn't mini me. Your son was mini me. I mean, your son was a little Matt cook. He looked exactly like you, same build, everything, but he really, as you mentioned, I mean, he chased baseball. And I remember when, when you were playing for the wild, he was like a star baseball player at the time. Right. Um, I remember it was the same thing with John Madden's kid for a while. He was like a great baseball player for a while when he played here. Um, but your your son continued that path. Yeah, so I mean, he's not so mini anymore. Uh, <laughs> he's seventeen. He's like two inches taller than me, and two, and you know, so he's like six foot, pushing six one. He's two hundred pounds. Uh, he's a catcher, and he's I mean, he, he's chasing ball. He's playing in Atlanta this summer, so with a team, a club team out of Atlanta, which is is fun and exciting, and you know you. You watch it on live stream or whatever, and they're they're seeing, you know, eighty eight to ninety five mile an hour pitching. So it, it, you know, it's it's real baseball. Right, right. Um, let's go back to to uh, coaching a little bit. Um, what type of coach are you? What type of coach do you want to be? Um, you know, how how are are you uh, a loud a loud coach on the ice uh, in terms of communication, all that type of stuff? So I coached the game very differently than I played. I mean, I played the way I was coached. Uh, mm-hmm. but I, I also had to adapt over the course of my career from 98 when like, if you were smaller than six, two, you really didn't play. Right. Uh, and so over the time in the last 20 years, it's really changed the dynamic of the, of the game. And so I've evolved and, and I'm evolved as a coach. I, I watch a lot of hockey still. I'm super interested in it and the nuances of it. And I believe that the coach's responsibility, at least while kids are in, still in a development model, that coaching happens in practice. And when you get to a game, you kind of, it's like the curtains come out and, you know, you're done your rehearsal. Now it's for mm-hmm. real. Mistakes happen, but the, the, the live show doesn't stop. You just battle through the mistake. And then after you can deal with the mistake and teaching. So I'm not a kicker screamer. <laughs> uh I can be intense and and that intensity usually shows up in practice um, because I believe that accountability is set and standards are set in practice uh, the way the execution of drills and, you know, one-on-ones and stuff like that, your pride and not getting beat, that all happens in practice. And then when you get into a game, it's your time to shine. So I think that, uh, you know, my model of coaching is, you know, I, I, through being coached by some greats, by being around some great leaders uh, that I've played with, you know, I, I believe that the the best way to coach is to be adaptable. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't be like, this is the way I do it. And this is always the way I do it. Different kids have different demeanors and you got to be able to manage just as much as you got to coach a system. You got to be able to manage 
uh, you know, different personalities. And I think that I have a pretty good grasp on that stuff. Right, right. You mentioned that you, that you don't coach the way that you played. Um, you know, I mean, you, you know, one thing that obviously people are always going to know about you is just obviously the extra stuff that you did on the ice as well. How do you, how do, how when a kid maybe, uh, uh, you know, maybe renders a hit that isn't exactly the, the, you know, the safest hit, how do you step in there? Do you, you know, and then they come back at you and like, well, you did it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. do, you know, do you just tell them it's, it's irrelevant? I mean, no, you know, this it's, is it's not irrelevant. Uh, you know, I have to accept responsibility for it uh, mm-hmm. because it was the way that I played, and there is video of it. Um, <laughs> but I was taught to get the biggest hit possible every chance I got. Mm-hmm. I was taught to get him before he gets you. So, in that model, like, I was never taught to turn my back on a guy skating at me full speed. Yet, that is something that happens in today's game. Because ever since all of these kids that are in the game play, they've had a stop sign on the back of their jersey where they're they're basically being told they're safe if they turn their back. So I was taught someone's coming and they're going to get the best of you. Protect yourself. Get up against the boards. Protect yourself. So when a dangerous hit happens, I don't necessarily criticize, but I coach on how the approach could have been different. And a lot of that comes from the video, the detail and video that I did after my suspension of Ryan McDonough that I did with Dan Balsma, we spent 30, 40 hours of video trying to change how I viewed my approach. And if I read different information during my approach, I could make a different decision. But if none of that changed, then the result would never change. And so I teach the kids like I, I mean, yesterday was my second day on the ice with the high school kids. And I told them, I'm, we don't get beat one-on-one. And I don't care if you don't, sit a guy in his butt at all the whole year, but we need to go the whole way. So mm-hmm. we need to push him into the boards and make his mo- take his momentum away. But I don't care if you knock him down because at the end of the day, it's about puck possession. And that's definitely not how I played. Right. I skated at guys with my stick in the air with one purpose, and that was to drive him into the end wall. But that's what I was taught. So, uh, so unfortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't taught this model, but I don't know that I – would have had the same success over the course of my career that I had if this is how I played. Yeah, 1,046 games, as I mentioned, another 110 uh, playoff games. Um, you know, Matt, we're, I want to talk to you about Billy Guerin as well, but um, but you know, you know what I – just as you were talking that I occurred to me, and I don't know if you're going to remember this, Matt, but you know what really impressed me about you when you first signed with the Wild is that I remember going to your press conference and I, I remember thinking to myself um, – God, I wonder if this guy knows all the stuff I've written about him. You know, like, like, uh, like, you know, because I was, I remember once you, you, you uh, came close to kneeing um, Nick Schultz, and and I remember writing critical stuff about you at the time, and and I remember after the press conference, you actually came outside and I asked you a question. I could tell there was a little tension there, and you actually pulled me aside. Do you remember this? And said, uh, "You and I need to have a lunch." No, and, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, and we went to Pittsburgh Blue. I do remember the, that. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember how impressed I was that you actually just like, you know what? I'm going to just sit down with the beat writer and tell him who I am. And, and you know, and I wrote a big feature on you at the time, I remember. But I think it was it was really good and why you and I had a really good relationship from that point on. Because it sort of cleared the air. It's like, you know, maybe you didn't even know the stuff that I had written about you. But it was sort of like, all right, if this guy's got preconceived notions about who I am. This is only going to help me to develop a relationship with them, and I just thought that was really a mature thing to do. And and I I I think that you and I had a good relationship covering you from that point on, just because of that sit down. Yeah, I mean, I I have a obviously 
you're in a tough position um, <laughs> because you need relationships with players. But part of the stress on that relationship is you also owe your your uh, the people that are following you honesty. And so mm-hmm. there are times in a season or in a year when the article that you need to write is going to offend somebody. And as long as they understand that, like, you're not out to get them, you just here to put a story out there that is true. Uh, how can we be mad at you? And so I need you to know that, like, when it's, I mean, when you want to write about me and it's the truth and I did something wrong, I'm not going to be mad at you because that's, that's what you have to do. But if you try to make something up or you make something up about me, that's not the truth, then that's when we would have right. a problem. And I respect you greatly because we, we never even had to even come close to crossing that, that, that border. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing I try not to do is ever get personal. You know, like I tried to keep it on the ice. Um, I remember actually sitting in, I was in Tampa once. Uh, it was early in the, one of the years and you talked, you, we, I was doing a big story about what sort of what you just said about how you really work to just, you know, clean up your act. And I remember there was like a stretch where you didn't even take a minor penalty for like 10 or 12 games. And then of course, I think they called you on a bad penalty in the third period of that game. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that game, but, uh, but it was, uh, but I, I just remember it was like, you know, how impressed I was that you did try to clean up your act. And then obviously, you know, the, the one year that everybody's going to remember is 2014 in the playoffs. Um, let's talk about the Tyson Berry um, incident as well, because that was one where you did get suspended seven games. It definitely turned the series around a hundred percent. I mean, the wild wound up winning that series. Um, and, but it had to be a, a one of the most difficult, um, experiences that you've had. I, I know that when you talked to Matt afterwards, you were very apologetic for, for the injury that, that Tyson Berry suffered. I think a sprained MCL. Um, but you were, you were also upset that, that they came down so hard on you and you considered actually appealing the suspension, but you chose not to for the good of the team because you didn't want to create a distraction in the playoffs. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was, I was pretty confident in the changes that I'd made. And to me, uh, you know, I had been two full seasons in Pittsburgh, a full season in Minnesota where there was nothing even remotely close to being suspendable, let alone, you know, I didn't even get a double minor for anything, you know, it was, or kicked out or anything. Like there was nothing that was even close. And I felt like I was in a really good spot and that hit, hit happened on Tyson Berry. And obviously the result of the hit, I didn't like, I didn't want him to get hurt i was just trying to finish my check and when i went to my the hearing you know i actually had video twice earlier in the game i had hit other defensemen on their team in the exact same fashion uh in the exact same position and that defenseman took the hit and either nothing happened or the defenseman fell down or the two results and on in this instance and in the video like Tyson tries to uh, evade the hit at the last second when I've already fully committed to hitting him. And when he dodges to his right, um, the only thing left is for our knees to collide. And at the time, and I think they've actually removed it, but the league had verbiage in their suspension, in their like uh, player safety videos that like sometimes knee on knee contact happens because. Uh, the non-hitter tries to avoid the hit at the last second. 
Mm-hmm. And so I showed that video, which they had on their website. <laughs> I showed clip by clip by clip of like when I started on my path to hit him, which was three feet from him, we were going to align body to body. And I don't move. I don't drag my knee. I don't anything. And the reason why our knees collide is because he tries to jump to the right. And um, the league suspended me. It was Stefan Kintel's very first um, hearing, in-person hearing. And Bill Daly sat in it. And, you know, I, I felt like I did a really good job of, like, this is why this happened. I wasn't trying to hurt him. Um, and that was my point. And um, unfortunately, they suspended me. I did want to appeal. I had the NHLPA's support to appeal, but uh, the Wild had asked me not to be a distraction and they would prefer me not appeal, which is the reason why I didn't go through that process. Mm-hmm. And you've seen now, I mean, I think now it's common practice, like, you know, Nazem Kadri appeals, mm-hmm. Tom Wilson appeals, and they go through the process. And in hindsight, in retrospect, you know, especially after being bought out by the wild, I wish <laughs> I had, I, had a, I wish I had have appealed because, you know, I, I did the thing which I'd always done and put the team first. Yeah. When, you know, that turned out to bite me in the butt a little bit. Yeah. I, and I, I think I've told you this before. I don't want to say who it was because it was an off the record conversation, but somebody that, that, that was around in that meeting told me uh, how good of a job that you did and that if they, yet you had appealed, that the league very well could have had to lower that the you know either Bettman or uh, the arbitrator if it went that way would have probably lowered the suspension because you actually made a lot of points in there with your video which um, let's let's talk about the hearing process what is that like bring fans into whether it's a phone hearing or a um, or an in person hearing what what is the whole hearing process like. The phone a phone hearing is very basic I mean you're just conference call. Um, you're on with player safety, you know, guys, usually one or two. Um, usually there's an NHL representative on the call as well. And then there's an NHLPA representative. And then there, your agent can be on or not, depending on whether you want them to. Pretty big. And is the GM of the team on there too? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In yeah. the in-person meetings, the GM goes with you. Okay. Uh, but you know, it's pretty basic. Like they ask you, we're discussing the hit. Can you describe it to us in your words? You kind of do your thing. Uh, They describe what they see. You can rebuttal a little bit or you can talk, discuss what, you know, the difference of opinions. And then what happens is the NHLPA who represents both players has to say something on both you know, speaks on both. Uh, the GM usually talks, you know, about conversations he's had with the player on this incident. And then the only reason why the agent is on there to speak on your character or, you know, those types of things. And so that happens and then they, they come up with a decision and usually they'll call the GM and then you hear from the GM as to what, what you're suspending. Mm-hmm. And I went through that process uh, in Pittsburgh a, a bunch of times. Uh, an in-person hearing, obviously, you, you fly to New York and everybody's in a boardroom and there's they're on one side, you're on the other. You feel like it's a mini court setting, basically. Mm. And in that scenario, the first time I ever did it with Colin Campbell is very different. Like, I didn't get to say two words. Like, it was very directed and stern. 
Wow. In my Kintel one, they actually let me link my computer and show my video and advocate for myself. And I would recommend any player that is in it. Like, if you believe you have a case, show the evidence. Like, make sure you get your five minutes to describe what you have. And now it didn't lower my suspension. Um, but I believe it could have. And I believe that I was prepared enough to actually get no suspension in that scenario because of the verbiage and wording that the NHL had in place mm -hmm. regarding kneeing. So uh, I think it's a, I think it can be, it's, it's nervous. I mean, yeah. you're, you're not in, you're in there with like the big wigs of the league. And so it's, it's a little bit nerve wracking, but um, you know, I think for the most part, they do a good job of getting it right. Yeah. Um, you, um, and I do want to talk to you about some of the recent ones, but, uh, it, so you do believe though, Hey, maybe it did lower your suspension. Maybe you would have gotten a dozen games. <laughs> Who knows? Right? right. Um, but, uh, but so you do think though, that a player actually, if he puts on a good case could actually sway their, either their mind into a no suspension or even maybe said, Hey, you know what? We were thinking four games, but maybe we'll make it two. Um, I think it has an effect. I truly do. I feel like they're there to listen. I feel I also feel like the more times you're down that that road, the less they're the less they're willing to right. listen. Right. Right. Benefit so, of doubt. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So I mean I think that I think it goes both ways. Yep. I do remember sitting with you before game seven. We were having dinner in the press room, uh, the makeshift press room at the Pepsi Center or whatever it's called now, Ball Arena. And you were nervous going into that game. And and it really dawned on me that one reason why you were so nervous was because if if the Wild lose that game, you're going to be suspended at the start of next season. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, it was it, it at least got you to make sure that you were going to start next season with the Wild. Um, which, as you mentioned, the following year you were you were bought out completely out of that was another one that was just completely sort of out of the blue. Um, if I remember correctly, the Wild wanted to buy out uh, Nicholas Backstrom, but he had an injury, um, and so you unfortunately the, the had to pay the piper for that. But um, but you, you, do you remember being nervous? And the other thing I remember about that game is after the game, after the win, they showed video of you, and you might have been the happiest guy that ever missed a game seven in that locker room celebration, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I rode game seven highs and lows the whole way. and You know, it was more getting an opportunity to get back out and battle with my – like I knew if we won, mm -hmm. I was getting a chance to come back in the Chicago series and battle with my teammates. And, right. you know, I feel like playoff time was a time that I was able to be successful. It was a time that my game really showed up. And so it was the time that – I mean, it, it was really super hard to miss playoff games, and it was the second time that I had to go down that road. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Back here on Straight from the Source. And again, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. That'll get you in for $3.99 a month. A lot of podcasts on the network today. Uh, Chris Johnson of Sportsnet and Hockey Night Canada joins Jonas Siegel and James Myrtle in an off-season off episode of The Leaf Report at The Athletic. Uh, and Predators goalie Pekka Rene joins Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebron on the two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. But my guest today is Matt Cook. Uh, Hideki, by the way, asks, uh, what's been cooking since he left the wild? I bet you've never heard that before, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's been on, 
that's been the, the whole cooking play on words has been <laughs> prevalent in my 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 through my my career yeah exactly um matt uh, let's let's talk about supplemental discipline because you know i really genuinely think that those guys try to get everything right um but it certainly feels like there's been a lot of inconsistency uh, throughout the post season throughout the regular season um and and all of that you know Kadri gets uh the the huge suspension during the playoffs we had tom wilson uh what happened at the end of the year with the rangers just gets off and you know it's interesting because he did something on the ice that um, that probably might have not been a suspendable act, but Ryan Reeves sort of did the same thing in the Colorado game one, and he gets suspended for it. Not a long one, but he gets suspended for it. So it does seem like it goes back and forth. Um, what's what's your whole thought on the whole process? I mean, like I said earlier, I believe that they they do their best to get it right. Unfortunately, there's pressures. There's people that are advocating or not advocating scenarios. There's history with each player that go into like it's not an equal playing field. If it's your first time getting in trouble, you're probably not in trouble, you know. And so um, that weighs hard on people. And then I also know just from my experiences of going through it that other other teams and GMs get involved, uh, mm-hmm. even when it's not their responsibility or their you know have anything to do with them. They they feel the need to make a phone call. Um, if we go down the list, like I don't like what Tom Wilson did. I think it has not absolutely nothing to do with the game, but I also know that like scrums like that back in the early two thousands were like every whistle. Mm-hmm. And I mean, sometimes you didn't even get a penalty. Right. You know? I can remember specifically a time against Minnesota, like in Vancouver that, and Minnesota was had some badass guys like Jason Marshall and uh, Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson, yeah, you get on the list. Like mm-hmm. there was some big tough guys, and you know you, every scrum was, you know, like that. You're getting tossed on the ground. You're getting wrestled. You're getting whatever. So, do I like it? No. Do I think it's a part of the game? No. Do I think there's a need for it? No. But then, is it suspendable? You know, if it created a concussion or created an, an injury maybe there's a reason for it but i'm also not a huge believer in suspending on result mm-hmm. like i believe that suspension should be on intent and not result um because you know it, intent and action can dictate a lot if a get you know if if the same intent and action happens but a guy doesn't get hurt it shouldn't change whether or not he gets suspended. right and we opinion. see that all the time yeah, yeah it shouldn't though in my opinion because yeah. you're actually trying to deter that action then regardless of the result it needs to be suspended yeah um the cadre is next and rule 48 is in existence and i think i have something to do with that Um, (laughs) yeah and so and we won't get into that very much but uh you know skating horizontally across the ice and you hit a guy on if you I mean, the way that the rule is now, you can skate through the middle of the ice with your head down, and if you get hit in the head, it's the hitter's fault. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily agree with that because I don't think you should ever skate through the middle of the ice with your head down. You should know where people are coming from, but um, it's the rule. And so when Nazem hits him shoulder first to the chin, and it's not his first time, I mean, that's 
that that's a hit that needs to be suspended. We're trying to protect guys. We're trying to protect guys' heads, and it's something that needs to be suspended. And you know, unfortunately, I don't think many would disagree. But uh, again, his history plays in into that effect. The Reeves thing, it it falls in line with Tom's. The difference is, um. I think the Reeves thing was preconceived because of what, and in retribution because of what happened earlier in the game. And so it changes. Like to me, Tom Wilson's was, it was a scrum and he's going to try and get it anybody you want, like anybody that's in the scrum. And he's not really thinking I'm going directly at Panarin, right? right? Whereas Reeves is specifically going after an individual. And when the referees get to him, he's got a fistful of hair. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I think that I think the circumstances around the situation and again, we go on intent and where that came from and it's retribution. So there needs to be a suspension. Yeah. And I do think on Reeves, uh, you know, I think he I think the league came close to dinging him for what he did to Ryan Suter in the game seven, uh, checking him into the crossbar. And, and I, I, my gut says that. Since they let him off the hook for that, they probably reacted to this one pretty swiftly. Um, Matt, or it's, again, we're talking with Matt Cook, the uh, owner of Perfect World uh, Hockey uh, Training, uh, right there in the western burbs of the Twin Cities as well. The new hockey coach at Chaska uh, as well. And and uh, by the way, I never even asked you how long you had, so if you got to run, Matt, just uh, just let me know. Uh, as long as you're good um matt let's talk about uh you mentioned 2003 um you know i didn't cover the wild back then um but obviously i've written about it a ton i've watched it a a ton um you were on the other end of the elation that the wild had the wild fans have what what was your perspective of that whole series on how the wild were able to rally back from a 3-1 deficit to beat you guys uh well, they had some motivation because of some comments that a certain player made right, um, to fans in Minnesota, which... Yep, Bertuzzi. You know, I feel like, especially playoff time, like, don't give anybody any ammunition, you know? Like, right. don't give them any motivation. And I, I literally, I can picture it that uh, Jacques put it on the top of the dry erase board above his lines, like, every day. Yeah, you know, because he's he needs to maximize the value of those comments. Yeah, um, you know, you get the Wild got performances in games five, six, and seven that they didn't have early in the series. You know, and a, a buddy of mine, you know, like Pascal Dupuis was a stud in those games. Wes Walls was, I mean, he was a nightmare for us, and uh, obviously Manny still in his head. So it's a you know, you, at that time, they had the back and forth with goalies, too. So, uh, you know, he, he, I guess the fear of not starting the next night um, yeah. plays into it as well. So they were so hard to play against because arguably they were the New Jersey Devils of the, the, the 90s, you know, the ones that stand in and um, wait and wait and wait for you to make a mistake. And then they pounce on you. And that's literally what they did. And I can remember in game seven, we turned the puck over in the neutral zone and ended up in the back of our net. And like literally f- fear went into our bench because they were a really hard nut to crack to even get a shot, let alone get a scoring chance. 
Mm-hmm. They defended so well that it just, I mean, it, if you scored first, they had to open up. But if you gave up the first goal, it was super hard to get anything off of the Minnesota Wild back then. Right. And then Darby had the big goal there, right? Is that the one that you're talking about? Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember he crossed the blue line and took a shot that I think beat Cloutier. Uh, man, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a heck of a series. Um, what was it like playing for Mark Crawford? I love Mark. I mean, uh, I think even he would agree that at times he split personality a little bit. Like, <laughs> you know, you talk to him in one minute and he's like happy-go-lucky and the next minute he's losing his mind. Um, but he was super detailed. Um, obviously playing the game at a high level that he did, he understood the game and um, prepared us well. Uh, and, he, and he was good at motivating. Now, he, he was a screamer. I mean... Anybody in the rink with 20,000 fans could know when Mark was needed something because he was going to scream. But he gave me an opportunity. He believed in me. He allowed me to be on the ice the last seconds of games to score big goals for Vancouver. And, um, you know, he believed in me. So he was a huge, played a huge role in my development uh, in the NHL. Yeah, he's, um, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't really have a, you know, because I covered Florida, then obviously Minnesota, I didn't know him well when he was coaching. Uh, but but I've, I've gotten a, you know, a much better relationship with him since, uh, you know, since uh, he's now obviously uh, coaching back here in, in North America. And so I got him, I got to know him well. He's somebody I should have called. We did a 2014 oral history last year. Um, and he's somebody I probably should have called for that story because uh, he, he, I think his perspective would have been really, really good. Um, let's move on to you coaching, you, you playing for the Pittsburgh Penguins. You mentioned Billy Guerin. Uh, tell us some Billy Guerin stories. You obviously, uh, I know that you had a really good relationship with him as a teammate. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and when I say, and really good relationship, like, uh, you know, one of the best qualities I think Billy has is his honesty. And so, you know, after, after hits, like after, you know, the Mark Savard hit, Billy had some comments in the media that most would have appeared that there was a rift in our room. Mm-hmm. But that, that rift happened in a communication in his, um, in his hotel room before that hit ever happened. And so, you know, I think that uh, he was very honest and had a discussion with me and gave me his thoughts and understood my perspective. And um, I think when you can communicate on things, you whether it's not your belief or your belief, you can come to some sort of understanding of each other's opinions. And so I think that's what makes him a very strong GM is that um, you know how he feels, you know where he sits and there's no gray area. So as a player, it's what I loved in Brian Burke was very black and white. You know, if you're not good enough, he's going to tell you (laughs) and you can, you can change. The last thing you want as a player is to be told like, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And then a week later you're traded because you didn't do what the coach was asking. I mean, or the GM expected. And I think that those are qualities in a GM that really embrace and cultivate success. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my best stories was just the constant ongoing relationship that Sid had with Sid had with Sidney Crosby had with Billy. So Billy came in and he was the right, he was Sid's right winger pretty much the whole time. And mm-hmm. Billy was no spring chicken. He was slowing down at the time a little bit. And I think he felt super rejuvenated to play with, you know, the phenom. And so 
Sid's demeanor, especially back then, early in like 08, 09, 2010, like he was doing things at such a high level that he expected everybody else to be at that level. And I don't think he had, at that time, he hadn't had a lot of time for reflection. <laughs> and so like, he just demanded everyone to be really good. And him and Billy would act like teenagers on the bench because Sid would say something like, come on, man, I, give me that puck. And Billy would be like, you don't think I'm trying? <laughs> like, I, wa- I don't want the goddamn thing. You take it, you know? Like, <laughs> and so, like, they would bicker, bicker, and then it would get to the point where Billy would get up and go to a, a different point in the bench because it they were just going at each other so hard that it wasn't going to stop if he kept sitting in the same spot. So, like, Billy would go down and sit with a defenseman just to get away from Sid. And it was it was constant, but it was, like, almost became a comedy for the team because we knew that they loved each other. They were going to go out and battle together. But when they came to the bench or we were in practice, they were just at each other the whole time. And Billy's pr- proud enough that he is not going to just back down. But um, pre- pretty funny to – it was a pretty funny experience for me because Billy obviously, you know, had been successful in his career at a really high level. And so, like, he was really the only one that could stand up to sit at the time. Uh-huh. And so like, he felt like it was his responsibility to do it for everybody else. And, you know, my approach was in the couple games that I got to play with Sid and he's, he's yelling at you, but he's yelling at you to bring you up to his level. He's right, not yelling right. at you because you failed. He's yelling at you because like, come on, man, let's do this. You know? Uh, and it's, it's hard to take it that way when it, when it's coming out of his mouth, but I pulled him aside after the game and said, dude, listen, like if you think I'm not trying to get you the puck, you're wrong. (laughs) If you think I'm trying to mess up, you're wrong. So I dealt with it on a one-on-one basis, but Billy had to air it out on the bench (laughs) and everybody in. So, and that just created like a butt of heads, which I mean, it it was comical and it was never a distraction. So, but I think it was just super funny to experience. That doesn't shock me. Uh, what was Billy like in the locker room? Like, like he was a jokester, right? Uh, you know, oh, things a thousand like that. percent. Yeah. I mean, like everybody's told me that. Yeah. There wasn't very many serious words. Like, uh-huh. with a, take it outside the confines of an actual game. All of the rest of the time that we were together as a team, I mean, sarcasm was front and center. Yeah. You weren't getting very many serious words out of Billy for sure. Um, but it, he kept it light. He kept the demeanor, you know, stress-free. And uh, I think guys like that are super valuable in a locker room. And, um, you know, I, I give him a ton of credit because yeah. um, he embraced coming to a new team and seeing an opportunity. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we made the most of it. Yeah, it's been fun getting to know him here in, in Minnesota. You know, it's funny. I, I've never told him this, but uh, but he was one – like years of covering this game – uh, he was one of my favorite players, uh, not just to deal with in a locker room setting and interview, but but just as a player to watch, uh, you know, one of my favorite USA hockey players, that whole era of, you know, Kachuk and Roenick and all those guys, um, Dougie Waite. Um, I mean, it was just a great era of USA hockey, but he was just a, such a fantastic player. But uh, just getting to know him in Minnesota, I mean, he's got a he's got a pretty funny personality. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a teammate of his. <laughs> um. Let's see. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, you know more about coaching, uh, Matt. Um, let's like you're you're gonna like what is now the next sort of next step? By the way, what do you have? Uh, like your staff already in place? I have one so far. 
Okay. Uh, so can, can you say one, who that is or? Yeah, it's John Drager. Oh, the, uh, uh the former wild, uh, draft pick. pick. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So he, he played two years at Shattuck or, or won two national championships at Shattuck. He played four years at Michigan state Yep. and then was drafted by the wild. Um, he's actually, you know, a minority owner of PWHT. Um, so he's got, okay. you know, he's got after coming back from school, he's gotten involved with the training business. He went back and got his master's in exercise science. And so, um, just really, uh, vibrant, young, energetic, and he's going to run the defense. Really cool. For the, staff, for the staff. Yeah, really um, cool. So what's the next sort of steps to get, you mentioned that you've already been allowed to be on the ice with them a couple times. What, you know, when does that sort of end, uh, you know, or is it pretty much you're allowed to coach them for until the hockey season? It's a lot of white tape, but uh, uh-huh. in Minnesota, there's access time and not access time. And so you're allowed to have access to, to your players in June and July. And once August 1st starts, then you're not allowed to contact them until tryouts. And so um, we'll run a summer training. I mean, we were on the ice four days a week, uh, minus the week after July 4th um, with with the guys uh, for an hour every day. And then in theory, because I'm not actually, I haven't actually coached them, we could, I could work with them through the fall, but uh optically i don't think that looks good and so Mm -hmm. we'll hire out for somebody to come in and run captain's practices for them through the fall um and then get get at it hit the ground running once we can have tryouts and what is uh you know the ultimate end game for this for you i mean do you want to be a high school coach forever and uh you know all of a sudden 30 years from now we're talking about being one of the greats and legends in minnesota hockey or would you is the is the hope here to eventually you know work your way into coaching into whether it's the nhl or the ahl i think that i have aspirations to be uh, a coach at a higher level and i don't i don't know if i i mean if i was to sit here today and assess myself i think that i would be a super valuable assistant coach at either one of those levels. Um, you know, I don't have a ton of experience being the head guy behind the bench. And, um, and so this is, you know, this, this opportunity at Chaska is going to give me an opportunity to pursue that and see how I feel about it, see where I'm, where I'm at on it. And, you know, I think it's exciting. I think that Chaska has a really bright future in Minnesota high school hockey. And so um, I'm just, I look forward to being a part of that and, you know, letting my knowledge, and experiences of my career um, help them advance, hopefully at a faster rate. Um, let me throw out some Twitter questions for you, then I'll let you go, Matt. You've been uh, really, uh, really generous with your time this morning. Um, Reinstein asks, uh, who is the wild player you hated playing against the most? I have two, <laughs> uh, and for completely different reasons. Um, obviously, Marion Gabrick was impossible to play against i mean so explosive such an offensive minded player always looking to take off and was the one player that jack basically allowed to just blow the zone because of his speed and so he he presented immense challenges for us individually but also as a team and then i would tell you that If you look back, I have a history against Matt Johnson, and mm-hmm. he was the guy that I, I guess I, I feared, you know, f- for a lack of a better word, because you know, I'm five ten and a half, two hundred pounds, and he's six three, two fifty, and 
a, a beast, you know, mm-hmm. a lot to handle. And we had some run-ins. Um, I hit him early in like maybe, maybe 2002, I hit him and he got a, he hit his head on the, on the boards and got a concussion. Um, and then the next time in Minnesota, I didn't even have the puck and he hammered me and gave me a concussion and he got suspended for it. And then that history just kept playing down the road. And then I hit Gabrick come, you know, coming across the middle once and he came at me and baseball swung his stick at me. And I ended up spearing him because Johan Hedberg, our goalie was going to get in between us. And that wasn't something I wanted, but I also didn't want to drop my gloves with that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we both got suspended for that altercation. And he just, I mean, he presented a, a fear in me that, you know, uh, made it hard for me to, to play when he was on the ice. Yeah. I never got to know him. And, um, and unfortunately I think that he's, he's run into some dire straits, uh, late in his life here. So, um, but man, I, I just, I remember watching him on TV from afar and just being absolutely just, you know, amazed by his power and, the way he'd uh he was true enforcer there's no doubt about it um let me throw a couple more at you if you don't mind um here's a good one we kind of joked about it before but from minnesota hockey fan 336 what is it was it like being uh on both sides of the bitter pens capitals rivalry had to be awkward uh she says yeah that was super. sorry that was that was super awkward for me because i went to washington first um and i mean had a pretty crazy run there. I think we went like 17, three and two or something to finish the season to catch Carolina, to win the division, to get in the playoffs. Um, and I was traded there at the same time as Sergey Fedorov and, um, and Cristobal UA, um, the goaltender. And so, you know, at the time it was Ovechkin, Semin, Victor Kozlov, Fedorov. I mean, they, we had like this Russian, uh conglomerate that was i mean basically ran our team and ovi was i mean obviously he was young at the time but like literally the best thing i could say to you is like who he is and what you see is that's truly who he is full of energy it's contagious um loves life loves experiences and um lives every day to get the most out of it and so that i mean he he just had that demeanor and then and i became close with them you know and even nikki backstrom he was young at the time and uh Greener was young at the time. And so helping them manage, you know, the, des- the, the desire to go out and live your life away from the rink, but mm-hmm. also make sure that when you come to the rink, you're prepared to go out and put your best foot on the ice. Yeah. Um, that summer I signed in Pittsburgh and obviously getting a chance to be with Sid and he's completely different from a, from a daily life basis. But I would say that they both led in very similar ways mm-hmm. they both expect they hold themselves at a super high level of accountability uh they both want to lead by example not by talking and both able to get a lot out of their 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 teammates because of that and so that rivalry i mean that first year we have a seven game series against them and um you know the year before i battled with all of those guys and now i got a battle against them so it does create a little bit of awkwardness but I think one good thing with hockey players is for the most part, when you step away from the, off the ice, you know, I go over to the locker room and hang out with them after games, you know, just to say hello. So yeah, the, there's a respect and a, and a, an understanding that the person on the ice is somebody that's competing, helping their team win. 
right not necessarily your friend that you are off ice right um kevtastic has a great question uh, your thoughts on the current climate of high school hockey parents and you know how will you uh matt deal with those inevitable conversations that come up or conflicts that come up with a, with a hockey parent do you just uh bring them into your office and show them some youtube highlights <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> this no. is what could happen to you if you uh continue to mess with me let me coach the team you know i think it's it's valuable to to speak to people who have had the experiences and being able to be any Dyna, I've become somewhat close with Kurt Giles, and I think mm-hmm. Kurt's been able to have a t- obviously had a ton of success in the Adina program, but also from a management style. And so I've discussed with him kind of his what he does and leaned on him a little bit, just because I don't have a ton of experience in dealing with parents. And so uh, you know, I think I, I'll be able to put a, a progressional, systematic form in place that will allow uh parents to advocate through their kid and if we still don't come to some sort of understanding or agreement then i'm willing to meet with parents but i think that um you know part of my responsibility as a high school coach is to help raise these uh boys into strong young men and Mm -hmm. um teach them life skills as well uh cam peterson asks uh um and maybe he knows you or was part of your program how has the experience been being a trainer at perfect world hockey training uh, so I mean, at the end of my career, the last couple of years, I trained with Andy O'Brien, uh, the sports scientist with the Penguins, and uh, got that access to that through my relationship with Sydney, and uh, it changed everything that I kind of how I viewed training. I mean, I before that, I had Olympic lifted, and you know, you get midway through the season, and your joints hurt, and your body aches, and you can't understand why because you've trained so hard in the summer. But part of what I learned is like you keep causing your body to have to have that load that uh, it has a wear wear and tear effect. And so in training with Andy, like I felt like I was years younger than I was at the end of my career and that I was way more efficient on the ice because I'd worked on, you know, functional strength. And so that's my approach. And I love to watch, you know, I love to have kids come in into the gym and, you know, in April or May. And when they leave in November for high school tryouts, they're 20, percent faster on the ice um you know they they're stronger they're faster and they're better and to me that's what the gym is all about is providing opportunity for young kids to get better yeah um and you uh you've had kids out of all ages right it's not just it's not just young kids right i mean you've had college kids you had andrews lee last year and those guys yeah i I think it's a you know we've over the last six years we've transitioned into older kids and the reason being we've uh we started out with high school kids our business model but those those high school kids have grown into be successful college players or professionals and then the more success we have the more people start talking about us than other people are pursuing training with us and so we've been exposed to higher level athletes and you know brock and anders you know searching us out and and you know have an opportunity one of the things one of the members that's part of us owner group is jordy murray who's Andy yeah. Murray's son and jordy runs arguably the most competitive pro skate in minnesota through the months of uh, july and august until octagon camp starts mm-hmm. uh, and so there's he's got like 80 pros that skate with him here and there and i you know the words that are being said is that you know it's a really really high-end skate 
Right, right. Or by the way, are you part of the Debuty League that start in July 14th? Would you ever coach in there or anything like that? Or I no? would, and I know Hank, but uh, I've never been asked. So okay, uh, we'll have to get you out there. <laughs> so. We'll see if uh, if I can. I mean, yeah. Ballard's been out there. I got to be able. To be yeah, exactly. Well. Like, uh, exactly. I'm not sure what information Keith's given, other than fishing up north. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. By the way, uh, last thing, a uh, comment. Uh, Tyler Strickland wanted me to tell you. Uh, my wife wore her Matt Cook jersey to a game in Tampa years back, and Matt's aunt and uncle came over to talk to us. Great people. That's my Matt Cook story. I'd love him to meet him one day and get it signed. So. Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember your aunt and uncle coming to a game in Tampa, but uh, yeah, Tyler Strickland. I mean, my a lot of my relatives from Northern Ontario snowbird down there, so right, uh, they would attend games in the Florida area to, so yeah. it, not not un- unusual. So, well, Matt, uh, you know this was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, look uh, look forward to watching you coach uh, Chaska, maybe seeing in the state tournament this upcoming year. Uh, but it'll be it'll be really cool to see uh, you kind of you know, dip your toes into this and maybe one day we'll find you, you know, on a bench in the National Hockey League. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to tiptoe in. I'm going to cannonball in and hopefully we can uh, make some noise this year. I think that there's the potential of this group is super high, especially with the skill level. So um, we'll see. I'm super excited. Well, that's awesome. Uh, well, thanks, Matt. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, check out our comments section for each podcast episode of The Athletic app and rate and subscribe to Straight From The Source on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash straight from the source and receive a subscription for $3.99 per month. We also have a lot of podcasts uh, coming up uh, next month. Uh, Billy Guerin, I'm sure, will join. Judd Brackett, the Wilds Director of Amateur Scouting, uh, used to be with the Vancouver Canucks, where, uh, where uh, Matt Cook uh, began his career. Thanks a lot, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike.